made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay by there, never to rise again, extinguished snaps out like a wick. Forget the former things. <clears throat> Forget the former things, do not dwell onto the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me and the jackals and the owls because I provide water in, in the wilderness and stream in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen. My chosen people I formed for myself and that they may proclaim my praise. The second re reading is from John chapter 12, verse 1 to 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, when Lazarus, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a, li a liter of pure nard, an expensive, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the frag fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why hasn't the perfume sold and the money be given to the poor? It was worth a year's wage. It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save the perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor amongst you, but you will, never have, you, will ne you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jewish, fa Jewish found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For an account of him, many of Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nayo. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father God, we just want to say thank you for the word that uh, Tim has prepared for us this morning. And we just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just uh, guide him and help him through the words he delivers to us this morning. Amen. 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 Thank you, Wendy. And thank you, Nao, for the reading. 
I wonder, how do you feel when you attend a social event and everything is great? Everybody's having a really, really good time. They're having fun, they're chatting with one another. And then something happens and the atmosphere in the room changes. Everything becomes tense and you could perhaps describe it as hostile. How does it make you feel? Well, one of the TV shows that I enjoy that I'm sure I've mentioned many times before is Blue Bloods. It's an American crime drama. It follows the Reagan family in New York. Most of them are involved in the, in the NYPD in some way or another. The daughter, Erin, is the assistant DA. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen the start of it yet. But she becomes the assistant DA. And she often annoys her brother, Danny, who is a detective. Because she goes by the letter of the law, as she has to do as the district attorney, or assistant district attorney. And Danny is often trying to bend the rules to get to the result that he wants. In every single episode of that drama, it's now in, I think, its 11th season... There is a scene around the dinner table. It's a Sunday dinner. Every single episode, the family come together, all the generations from the youngest to the eldest. They come and gather around the dinner table. And the producers of the show say that is one of the crucial parts of the of this show. Because the family who are practicing Catholics come and gather around the dinner table, which is something that is missing in society these days. And more often than not, when they are sat around that dinner table, the family are enjoying themselves and sharing banter with one another. There's a wonderful scene towards the end of one of the series where the youngest son says, I want to introduce you to my girlfriend. And she comes around and she's welcomed into the family as one of them. However, there are also times when they are gathered around that table and there is that frosty silence. There is that sense of tension because Danny and Erin have brought their work into that situation and it's, you hear the noise of the knife and the fork on the plate. You hear the person next to them saying, can you ask so-and-so to pass me the bread? You get the picture. There is an argument between the family. Shared meals like that should be a time of support and friendship, not of anger not of silence or, silence or any other negative connotation. A shared meal at church as we come to gather for Holy Communion is a time of joy and celebration and remembering what the Lord has done for us. It's not a time when we are negative. Why all this about eating and a dinner table? Well, I'm sure you've guessed the link to the passage today. John 12, 1 to 11. We see one of those incidences where there is a social event which people are enjoying. And then something happens which changes the atmosphere and it makes it hostile. Six days before the Passover, Jesus and his disciples are attending a dinner in his honor. Tells us that in verse 2. And his disciples start bickering with each other. To give it some context, at this stage in John's gospel, we are at the point where everyone is plotting against Jesus. And now even his faithful followers start bickering amongst themselves. You can just imagine the scene. Them all sat around the table waiting for this wonderful dinner that Martha has prepared. And then Mary comes in, pours the nard on Jesus' feet, and Judas pipes up, Why wasn't that sold? Etc. The disciples turn to him, I imagine, and look at him. I'm wondering, what's he on about? 
And as we read the passage, we can feel the tension that is in that room around that table while they were having their meal. John tells us that Judas doesn't care about the poor because actually he is a thief and he's been helping himself to the common purse. At this stage, the disciples don't know that Judas is the one that will betray Jesus when we get to the Easter story. We know that it's Judas. And verse 4 tells us that it's Judas who later will go on and betray Jesus. So in many ways, this passage actually ends up as a series of confrontations between those involved around a dinner table. As well as the obvious confrontation between Judas and Mary, even before this, in verse 2 we read, Martha served, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard. Mary and Martha, the sisters who we've met before, In the previous chapter of John's Gospel in Luke 10, the Gospels themselves are coherent about these sisters. We know that they are rounded characters and we actually feel that we can get to know who they are. Here we see Martha having prepared the dinner as she's done before, but Mary comes in to try and steal the center stage. Not simply by sitting at Jesus' feet, but by her apparently outrageous gesture of anointing Jesus' feet. Mary would have had to let her hair down to then wipe the feet of Jesus. And that in itself is something that in the ancient Middle East would be the equivalent to somebody here hitching their long skirt up to the top of their thighs. So it is something that would have created tension of, ooh, what's she doing here? Why is she making this gesture towards Jesus? You just need to think of that in context. Can you imagine how that would have changed the atmosphere in the room as Mary lets her hair down? We see in verse 2, Lazarus is reclining. You get the sense that everyone was relaxed and jovial around that table. Yet with this act, the tension in the room changed and it became hostile. Imagine how Martha must have felt in that moment. Has Mary gone too far this time? By letting her hair down, by using this nard and anointing Jesus' feet. Of course, we know in the other Gospels it's his head. But chances are it is the same event we're talking about. It was Judas then who came out and says it. Why are you doing this when that could be used, sold and used to help the poor? You can imagine the other disciples sat around being embarrassed by the actions that Mary has taken and then Judas' outburst and Jesus' subsequent comments. However, John is very clear where the blame lies. We hear about Judas having stolen from the common purse. So we know that his reaction is not actually a sincere reaction. He's thinking of himself and the money that could have been sold that he could have then taken from the common purse of the disciples. We then hear Jesus' reply in verse 8, which is a strange one. Even Tom Wright says that John might well have known that what he's written doesn't make sense as it stands. Now we're in Bethany, which means house of the poor. And here... We are hearing about the poor and Jesus telling us that they will always be among us. There will have been a tension at that meal. The poor are still among us now. Have we got the church priorities right to look after the poor as we are instructed to do by this book? 
Today, we begin Passiontide. It continues through to Holy Week and to Easter. We start to see the tension rise, not just in that room, but as we head towards those days that change the course of human history. The tension rises as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, as we get the story of Palm Sunday and then the events of Holy Week that we know all too well. This event, as I said, is mentioned in all four of the Gospels, but the differences are that an entire sermon in itself, and I'm not going to go into them today. But where we are in John at today, John 12, if we think about it, Jesus' public ministry starts to move to a close with this event in Bethany. Think back to where John begins, though. John begins in Cana at a wedding. Jesus and his disciples attend, ready for that newly launched mission. The wedding implies a joyful occasion, full of excitement. There's water turned into wine. Yet here, as we begin Passiontide, we hear of this meal, and we see the dark, heavy clouds gathering on the horizon. The talk is not of renewal in this passage, it's of burial. The mood is very stark. And then at the end, in verse 10, we hear that there are plots to kill Lazarus as well. So perhaps the question for us today, on this Passion Sunday, is who do we associate with in that passage? Are we with Mary, worshipping Jesus with everything we've got, risking the wrath of Martha, who's doing all the hard work, and the anger of the men who perhaps don't know what to do when a woman lets her hair down in public? Are we the cautious, prudent, and reliable Judas? Or at least that's how he's seen at the moment. Bear in mind that he will go on to um, betray Jesus. He's looking after the small resources of the group without steady or settled income. But he's anxious to provide for the needs and give money to the poor. If we read it as it says, taking a side that he was a thief and taking a side that he will go on to betray Jesus. And it's actually worth noting that when Judas leaves the supper in John 13, 29, the disciples thought he was going to give money to the poor, even though he was going to the authorities for his 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. Perhaps it's worth us pausing when we think of Judas and taking a moment, because naturally we want to distance ourselves from Judas Iscariot because we know that he betrayed Jesus. But what if we see a glimpse of him when we look in the mirror? Is there a glimpse of Judas in us? Obviously, Judas betrays Jesus in a very public way. Other times in our lives where we have betrayed Jesus. If you're sat there saying, no, that's not me. I'm afraid, friends, I'm going to have to say that's not true. We have all done it. There is some of Judas in all of us. It's worth pondering. Perhaps... We associate with Martha, back in the kitchen doing all the hard work and then feeling usurped by Mary. I wonder how she would feel about what happened. We don't know. The gospel doesn't tell us, but I wonder how she would have felt having prepared this dinner and then Mary trying to steal her thunder. Perhaps the question for which to answer is personal. Who do you most associate with? And I think actually we probably all associate with all of them at different stages in our lives. Thinking of where we are as a church, there will be some of us who associate with Mary, who want to give absolutely everything we've got to the, to the, and press ahead with what the Lord wants and give everything we've got to the church. 
Give everything that we have, no matter what the cost. Perhaps there'll be some of us who associate with Judas. The cost of living is rising rapidly. We might be thinking about how are we going to pay the bills in the coming months, yet we still want to give to charity. How do we do that effectively? Perhaps we associate with Martha, feeling that we are the ones doing all the hard work behind the scenes, but we never ever get the credit in the church or in life. I think we all associate with the three characters at certain points. So perhaps the question for us this morning is not who do we associate with out of those three, because I think the answer is all of us. Perhaps the question for us this morning is actually, where am I with God? It's an uncomfortable question. And we might be afraid of the answer. Where are you with God this morning? Where am I with God this morning? Am I betraying him? Am I giving everything that I've got to his glory? Or am I feeling jealous because I'm stuck behind the scenes not doing, not getting the credit for what I do for all the hours that are put in? Where are you this morning, friends? It's not a comfortable question. But it is a very important question in our walk with the Lord to ask, where are we? There is no right or wrong answer. We are in a season, though, where things are uncomfortable. Not just in the church as we review the vision and we start putting things into place. But the whole world feels uncomfortable at the moment. It feels uncomfortable to know what to do. The situation with Ukraine and Russia is continuing. There's the threat of nuclear war that's there. COVID cases are climbing again rapidly. It's at least one in 16, they're saying, yet free testing has come to an end. The price cap on energy has gone up. Petrol and diesel prices are high. Inflation is high. Salary increases are in effect, decreases because they're not keeping in line with inflation. Where is God in all of this? And where are we with him? It was a question I was asked on the radio this morning. When you see those images of Ukraine, do you, does it challenge your faith? Yes, friends, it does. It challenges my faith to see where is God at work in this. The news at the moment is so dire. Sometimes I have to distance myself from the news, not because I'm trying to be ignorant, but because it is just too hard to watch and hear what is going on in this world at the moment. Lord, have mercy. It's at this point, though, that we actually need to turn back to the Old Testament (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, there's a projectile just flying over. <laughs> we have to turn back to the Old Testament and we see what is said in Isaiah. We know that the old way of doing things has gone. Life as we knew it pre-pandemic is no more. Life where things are comfortable, I'm afraid are prob- is probably no more at the moment, at least for the next few months or even years. We can long to get back to the way things were. But quite frankly, the world has changed too much. And we don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine. But like we are here in Isaiah, to gain things, we have to give up others. For Amanda and I to move down to Luton, we had to give up Yorkshire. Something that a lot of friends and family thought I would never do. I look at the comments of when I said I'm moving down to Luton, and they were like, what, you're going south? (laughs) I had to give up Yorkshire, but without a doubt, it was the right decision for Amanda and I and now Hannah. And it means that we get to minister with all of you lovely people here in Luton. In Isaiah, God is saying that he gave up Egypt for his people because they are valuable to him. 
Friends, we are valuable to God. Where are you with God this morning? Remember that you are valuable to him. This passion tide, as we start to get down into the dark depths of Holy Week, yes, we've got the high of Palm Sunday, but we've got the dark depths of Maundy Thursday, of Good Friday, of Holy Saturday. God is there for you. And remember, as we approach that season, that God would have done all of that, Jesus would have done all of that, if he were the only person that walked this earth. What we see in Isaiah is a reminder that God brings his people out of Egypt and into Canaan and is now bringing back to Canaan all those who are scattered around in the ex- from the exile. Translating this into today, God has promised to bring his people back together in the church. The church as the body of Christ, no matter what denomination, no matter what tradition, no matter how we show our faith, God has promised to bring his people back together as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters. And when we do that, when we work together as brothers and sisters across Luton, across England, across the world, the church can come together and show the world what it means to live in a different way. What it means to live in love with one another, in unison, in peace and in harmony rather than in disunity, in war, and with violence. We know it's not going to be easy. But what we can see is that to get somewhere new, we have to let go of the past. The church is moving forward, and we need to be ready to respond to God with a yes when he tells us what we are doing. I've had many conversations over the past few weeks and have been able to see that there is definitely something new rising up. God is clearly at work. Conversations of how we get out of these walls and into the community. Conversations that have turned into actions where people are willing to start listening to the church. The Lord is ready to do a new thing. We just have to let go of the way of the old and allow him to do his stuff. As we take these bold steps into the new vision, we have to make sure that we aren't holding on to things that have held us captive in the past. We all need to be ready to change and respond to the Lord's call on our own lives and on this church. As we continue on this path of moving forward, there will be times when perhaps we associate with Mary more. And it might be perceived that we're giving our all to Jesus and pressing ahead, no matter how that affects those around us. There might be some of us thinking about the resources that we have as a church, financial, people, time, service, hours. And while we're stretching ourselves too thin, we might feel nervous about starting new ministries or reviewing and reviving what we currently do, as well as the personal cost to us in what the Lord is calling us to. We might feel like we're doing all of the background work and, getting, and not getting any notice or credit for it. Friends, it's not about making sure that we are known by everyone. What we do for the church, even the 99% of things that we do, not on a Sunday morning, the Lord still will see our dedication and our service. And that's what really matters at the end of the day. It's not about how much we do. It's not about what we do in public. It's about what we do for the glory of God. He sees all the preparation that we spend. That's what it's about. That's what really matters. 
As I've said, there's no right or wrong of who we associate with at the moment. But we need to make sure that we don't go down the line of that dinner in John 12 and end up falling out with each other and creating a tension. We need to come together to have essentially a family dinner where we are all getting along, we're sharing ideas, we're bouncing them off each other, and we meet and we encourage one another. That's the picture of the church today. Passion Tide begins. The clouds are gathering as we head towards the darkness of Good Friday and Holy Saturday. But we know that there is that glorious and triumphant news of Easter Day that we will be celebrating in just two weeks' time. As we head towards Easter and the darkness of the latter part of Holy Week, it's a chance for us to reflect on our own lives and leave the things we're not proud of at the foot of the cross. It's a chance to leave the past where it belongs, in the past. And it's an opportunity for new life and new opportunities to create themselves. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? To allow this to happen, what do we need to let go of? What do we need to leave behind? Rather than focusing on what we have given up, let's focus on what lies ahead. Let's not look in the rearview mirror, but let's look in the windscreen and see what's up ahead. Let's try to get the middle ground of Mary, Judas, and Martha, where each of us are worshipping Jesus with all that we've got. Each of us are thinking about the resources that we have and how we can best offer them to the church and to the Lord. And how each of us are like Martha, doing things in the background that don't get noticed, but it makes sure that the church works well. Let's get ourselves into a place where we can go through the pain of Good Friday, the whole loss of Holy Saturday, to get ready for the joy of Easter Day. Let's journey on together with the Lord, see what he is doing and where our part to play is in all of this. There might be opposition ahead. There might be tension. But as we get through it, it only makes us stronger as the body of Christ for whatever comes our way. So friends, let me ask you, are you up for it?